0: Welcome back to another episode of Couch Detectives. I'm your host, LB. That's me. And let me start off by saying hi to all of my new listeners here and all of my new followers on Instagram. Last week's episode brought in a lot of traffic and I am truly grateful for that. If you haven't tuned into the episode yet, be sure to do that and support those that were mentioned. Also, thank you, thank you, thank you to my loyal listeners. You are simply amazing and I love you guys so much. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the family. I'm so glad that you decided to join us. I hope you enjoy this episode and it will encourage you to stick around and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. You can also follow Couch Detectives podcast for visuals and updates on Instagram at Couch Detectives Podcast. Now let's jump right into it. As we know, it is Black History Month. So all of the cases will have an aspect of Black history to them. And this one is no different. And I have yet another special guest to walk us through this case. Now, although Black History Month is a time to celebrate the progress that has been made, and it's an opportunity to honor those who fought for equal rights for Black people in the United States, It's also a time to realize and understand just how far we have to go. This week's episode is going to take us back to the early 1900s. 1945 to be exact. And we are going back down south. The deep south. We are going to be looking at a case that shouldn't have had the outcome that it did. And reveal just how much things like this are still occurring in America today. Cuthbert's Georgia. This week, I am in your backyard as I bring you this case of the wrongfully convicted. This is the case of Lena Baker. Before we jump into this case, let me go ahead and introduce my special guest to you guys. Hi, I'm Allie Patrice. And she is also a true crime enthusiast. So this is going to be a very exciting episode to record with her. And also let me go ahead and give you guys some statistics before we jump into it. So I mentioned in last week's episode about the racial inequality in the criminal justice system when it comes to wrongful convictions. There is no difference. According to the innocenceproject.org, more than half of the death row exonerees are black
1: did you know that i did not
0: yes and for those of you who are not familiar with what an exoneree is an exoneree is a person who has been convicted of a crime and then later was officially declared innocent of that crime of the 185 people exonerated from death row since 1973 about 53 percent are black and nearly half of the people currently on death row are black. That doesn't surprise me though. No? Why? It doesn't. It doesn't because we know that the justice system
1: is not geared to black people. We know that we are basically, even our education system is basically mm-hmm. a pipeline to, to the criminal
0: system. So the school's prison pipeline is mm-hmm. a real thing. Um, in 2020, about 42% of people on death row were black, even though black people make up just 13% of the US population Mm. overall. So these are statistics from America. Obviously, it's not the same all around the world or I'm not familiar with the statistics in other countries. Um, A couple more. People convicted of killing white people are executed at 17 times the rate of those convicted of killing black people.
1: 17 times?
0: 17 times the rate. So you are more likely to be executed for killing a white person than you are for killing a black person. Surprising?
1: <sighs> Not
0: really. <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> but, I mean, that just shows what, what the value of life
1: is. Of in black life. Yes. Yeah. Well, white people, their lives
0: are valued more than black people. I Agreed. mean, the statistics support that. Absolutely. Um, innocent black people are 7 Times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than innocent white people, it takes longer to exonerate an innocent black person than it does to take to exonerate an innocent white person. They spend forty five percent longer behind bars than white people, and this one didn't surprise me. Police misconduct occurred in more than half of all wrongful murder convictions. Cases involving innocent black people.
1: I know this is a true crime podcast,
0: right? (laughs) Yes.
1: But I just wonder, so these statistics are readily available. Mm -hmm. We have these numbers. Yep. What is being done about it?
0: Like... If you have that answer out there, <laughs> anyone in law enforcement, what has been done about it? Because I don't, I didn't research that, but I feel like because it's consistently happening, is repetition. We see these cases where it's constantly occurred. I don't feel like a whole lot has been done. You have true crime podcasts, we're speaking about it, but behind the scenes, like I don't see what's been done. Now, are there other factors that could contribute to these statistics? Yes but the common denominator is race. So that brings us to this case. In 1944, we have 43-year-old Lena Baker. Lena was born on June 8, 1900, in Cuthbert, Georgia, to a family of sharecroppers. Lena would later follow in their footsteps and become a sharecropper herself, but during her childhood, she enjoyed singing in the choir, which during that time was definitely a popular thing because church was a safe place for African-Americans. Lena picked cotton with her mom, her siblings, and one of her best friends. Lena's mom was one of those very protective moms and did everything that she could to support her family. Early on in Lena's life, her dad left due to unknown circumstances. But even during a time where life wasn't fair to say the least, she still found time to attempt to enjoy her life. Her best friend at the time was a little wild one, often getting in trouble for talking back, and Lena's mom wasn't a fan of her. But for Lena, she was definitely someone she enjoyed being around. As they got older, Lena still did labor And she also started helping her mom at the house of one of the white families doing laundry. Lena wanted to pursue a singing career and eventually move up north because there was a tad bit more freedom for African Americans in the northern states during this time. Lena's best friend came up with an idea for them to get extra money to help them make it up north. She and Lena began entertaining some of the men in the area, both black and white, to increase their income. And though it wasn't ideal for Lena, she did want to make it. They weren't making a lot of money, but it was more than what they would have been making if they were working for one of the white families. So she was, she was an entrepreneur. She was an entrepreneur, okay. yes. But their business did not last very long because they were eventually busted and arrested and sent to labor prisons. Lena was sentenced to 10 months at a horrendous labor prison where they would chain the men and women together. Mm. Yes. And the living conditions were just awful. This traumatized and changed Lena, which is not surprising. I think prison now is traumatizing, but to imagine prison in the 1940s, in a labor prison because they were doing work. Right, and they're in the hot Georgia sun. The- they're not in
1: a the factory. They are outside, chopping rocks, picking
0: up garbage, Listen. lugging things. Chained together. Chained. Chained. Insane. After her release, she went back home to her mom and began earning an honest living. It's unclear as to by whom I did the research Just couldn't find it, but it was also during this time that Lena had children, eventually giving birth to three, two boys and one girl. Lena became dedicated to her family, and she made sure that she spent as much time with her children as she possibly could. She had her mom's support, and she needed it because the time that she spent in the labor prison often came back to hunt her. To deal with this, Lena turned to alcohol, she began drinking, sometimes heavily, but eventually she did find the strength to stop drinking. Lena was still working with her mom during housework for her family when she was approached or more like summoned because back during this time when a white man comes and says, hey, I want you to work, it's not, like a, it's not always in a nice way. It's not a choice. No, it's not a choice. <laughs> she was summoned by the son of Ernest Knight, a local mean drunk who owned a grist mill in town you know what a grist mill is is that where they make flour yep (laughs) a grist mill is a little building where you grind cereal into flour and middlings and he produced a lot of that for the people in town the son said that he wanted lena to work for his dad because his dad had recently broke his leg and needed help around the house though extremely hesitant because they knew how he was, he was a mean old drunk, she really couldn't say no. As you said, this was not a type of situation where it's like, Mm -hmm. I can refuse. Not happening. So Lena went to work for Ernest Knight. Now, everyone in the town knew the type of man that he was. He was mean. He was old. I ain't going to say he was ugly. He was a mean old ugly man. He wasn't a kind man at all. Definitely was ugly on the inside. Yes. So people typically kept their distance from him, both white and black. He was also a former client of Lena's when her and her friend had their business. So when she arrived to his place to help him, he really had other things in mind. Mm. Lena only wanted to be there to work and go home. Ernest had other plans. Immediately upon her arrival, he began his nasty ways, talking to her reckless, trying to force her to drink after she had just stopped drinking and touch her inappropriately. Lena denied his advances several times, but to no avail. This is also one of those things that you almost just can't say no to during this time. Me Too movement would have been... A thing. Of you're like
1: caught in. It's like a catch twenty two. Like you can't say no,
0: mm.
1: and you can't really report them because then it's like, oh, you're accusing someone. Are you lying? Are you calling them a liar? And to call for a black person to call a white person a liar at that time, that was frowned upon. So what even do you do? though
0: people in authority, you know what's going on. You know that this is happening. You know that what she's seeing is likely not a lie. It's still not going to be successful for black people. It's discouraging. It's frustrating. It was America in the 1940s. After working for him for a while, he began to consistently force her to drink, resulting in her getting drunk often, thus resulting in her staying there all night. They also began to engage in a more sexual relationship, initially against her will, most times against her will, but he was a very forceful man. He'd lock her in the mill when he left, prohibiting her to leave and go back to her family and her kids. He really became like fixated on her, much to the dismay of the town. When word got around they were having relations, people obviously had something to say about it. This was the deep South in the 40s, and interracial relationships and dating was not just frowned upon. It was illegal, like against the law to date outside of your race. For a black man and a white woman, definitely death would probably follow that. But to have a relationship between a black person and a white person was against the law.
1: So why didn't anyone step in and say, hey, old, mean, drunkard white man, Um, how about you un- unlock this woman from the mill and
0: stop the foolishness? We're going to get there. Okay. So the blacks were scared for her more than anything and whites were just downright nasty. Though this was not her typical relationship, she didn't want to be there. He was obsessed with her. Now his son hated this. The same son that hired her to come work for him hated this mm. and he blamed lena more than his dad even though she's really there against the gets her will so she locked herself in the middle yeah she locked herself according to him like right. she, he's like why do you keep coming here why are you trespassing after he's the one that hired her but when i tell you his dad was really like obsessed with her he ended up sending his dad to florida to get him away From her, which Florida is right next to Georgia, for those of you that are international, it's a state apart. But this move wasn't going to change anything. To Lena, this move was music to her ears, as well as her mom's. She was finally free of him and was able to go back to her family and try to resume some kind of normalcy, as much as you could get during that time. But, Nope. Ernest Knight was not going to leave Georgia without Lena. He practically kidnapped her. He threatened to kill her and her family if she didn't go. I'm in shock. Literally took her from her home and made her come to Florida with him. Again, his son hated it. But at this point, it's like, what can you do? You can't stop him. This man is going to do what he wants to do. They spent about six months in Florida with the same old routine before returning back to Cuthbert, Georgia. Upon return, the same thing occurred until Ernest's son came over and literally beat Lena out of the meal Because in his head, it is still her fault. She's this black woman trespassing after you hired her.
1: <sighs> okay, but is okay. I know there's not really much, and it's hard because both parties have been deceased, right? Mm-hmm. But was there any point in which you think Lena was kind of, there was a dependency, let's say, I, from between my research. Lena
0: and like wanting to be around him for some reason? I know he wasn't a nice person, but... I think a lot of people have come to the conclusion because before she got with him, she was drinking. And I think that what a lot of people say, because he was providing the alcohol, that was an incentive for her to stay. But for the most part, she didn't want to be there. She had kids. She wanted to get to her kids. I can't imagine wanting to be locked up. I can't imagine wanting to be prohibited from seeing your children and oftentimes being someone's sex slave because it was not that this was something that she initiated it was him like listen I want you here I'm going to keep you here right. so I can't I can't imagine her like being okay with it I can see it being listen I'm just going to shut up and do what I have to do for the safety of myself and my family does it mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think sometimes even with relationships, you just don't think that um, regardless of the type of relationship, professional or familial or uh, whatever, that you just don't think that some people are capable of doing certain things. You think, yeah. oh, they may do this. They're pretty horrible. But are they going to go this far? Yeah. And maybe she felt like there were times when he was more manageable and you just never know when that, when he's just gonna take it to that
0: next level. Yeah. I don't know. I can see that. I can see that, like that Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. thing. But I just, I feel like with Ernest, with his reputation, yeah. I don't think she saw any positive in him. I feel like she just knew that she had to do what she had to do to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So even after his son literally beat, Lena at the house he called the town sheriff and he was like listen she's trespassing get her out of here and he made it seem like she was the one who wouldn't leave him alone when it was his dad the whole time Mm -hmm. like he seriously refused to let her go and as a white man he had the power to keep going back to get her and force her into his place so Mm -hmm. the sheriff came back and he I mean the sheriff came over took Lena to the house and was like listen do not go back To his home. If you do, I am going to arrest you. I'm sure Lena's like, listen, that's fine. I don't want to go back. But, Ernest being Ernest, a white man who has this power, he can go back and get her at any moment. And that's just what he did. On the night of April 30th, 1944, Lena is locked inside of the mill again while Ernest is out there's literally a chain on the door she can't just get up and leave so I know somebody's listening probably like why don't she just leave like she cannot just get up and leave she's locked in this place so when he got back she told him that she wanted to go home she needed to go home to be with her children and he refused to let her go but this night she was going to go she stood up to leave because she was sick of it, and they began to tussle. He grabbed a metal bar, so he had this bar that was holding the door together. He grabbed the bar and raised it to her like, listen, if you go or you try to leave, I'm going to kill you, and she's like, I'm leaving, Ernest. Like, I'm, I want to go home to my children. I'm tired of being locked here. I'm tired of being a sex slave. He then pulls out a gun, threatening to shoot her if she left. They tussled some more, and then the gun went off, shooting and killing Ernest immediately. She realized what she did, and she went straight to the town corner, which was once someone she worked for to tell him. She was arrested that night and booked in jail. Okay, I was wondering why did she go to the coroner? Because she knew him. She felt like she can go to him okay. and let him know, like, listen, this is what happened. I, I made a mistake and killed Ernest. We were fighting over this. And he's like, okay, you need to go and turn yourself in. Mm. She thought that she could trust him in this moment. She would soon learn that she could not. To me, this is a classic case of self-defense. Clearly. but There's a long line of history to prove this. Long hot line of history, but for a black woman in the 40s, who just killed a white man, a horrible white man, but a white man nonetheless, this was much more. Her all-white male jury, mostly of people who knew Ernest and had drinks with him before, rejected her plea of self-defense. Wait, I'm sorry. Yes.
1: I've heard that we're supposed to have A
0: jury of your peers. Aren't we? Isn't that what the justice system says? That we should have a jury of our peers. All white male men. His peers. His peers. Okay. The victim's peers is who rejected her plea. So she knew that she did it. She wasn't coming to say, listen, I didn't do anything. Let me go. She wanted to enter a plea of self-defense. And they're like, no. They started the trial on August 14th. 1944, Lena's court-appointed lawyer didn't call any witnesses to the stand, and the witnesses for the prosecution made it seem like Ernest was this nice, innocent man. So she had no character witnesses? Not one. And the trial didn't even last a full day. The all-white male jury took less than 30 minutes to deliberate, which I'm pretty sure they weren't deliberating there. I was going to say. They are probably just talking, hey, what are you guys doing after this? We got to make sure that we look like we're doing something so we can look like... No, they probably weren't. They came back with a guilty verdict of capital murder. From self-defense to capital murder saying she intended on doing this she did this on purpose
1: so what so capital i know there's like murder in the first second there's capital murder Mm -hmm. what what's the difference between self-defense and capital murder well
0: i know self-defense but yeah what is capital murder so in georgia during this time capital murder would have been a capital crime when it was committed by a slave or a free person of color and she was a free person and it could be assaulting a white person with a deadly weapon or with intent to murder. So this is what they found her guilty of instead of her self-defense claim. Crazy, right? So that's pretty much
1: like any violent crime, even if it didn't result against
0: in murder and death. Against a white person, because it could have been poisoning, attempted poisoning, rape. From a black person to a white person. Yeah. She was immediately sentenced to death by this gun-toting Confederate flag brandishing judge. Her lawyer immediately asked for a new trial because the verdict was very obviously not matching up with the evidence. But right after asking for a new trial, he also resigned as her lawyer. So just... Up and quit. This is a court appointed lawyer who didn't call any witnesses. Remember, white man also. Right after he asked for a new trial, he just quit. She was granted a 60 day reprieve, but then denied clemency by the Board of Pardons and Parole after they heard her case. They set her execution for March 5th, 1945. She was sent to one of the worst prisons on February 23, 1945, to await her execution, where they put her in the men's section before transferring her to the cell that she would sit in to wait for her death. On March 5, 1945, Lena Baker became the first and only woman to be executed in Georgia's electric chair. It has been constantly reported that her last words were, what I done, I did in self-defense or I would have been killed myself. Where I was, I could not overcome. God has forgiven me. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be with my God. And with God, she went. Mm. She was pronounced dead at 1126 a.m. after six minutes and several shocks. The idea of seeing someone die by electric chair is just unreal to me. But it wasn't until 60 years after her execution that she was pardoned by the same board of pardons that denied her clemency. August of 2005, she was pardoned posthumously, which means a form of symbolic redemption or a way of redeeming a dishonor that is carried over from one generation to another. The board acknowledged that the decision to deny her clemency in 1945 was a grievous error. You think, to say the least. And that she could have been charged with a lesser crime of voluntary manslaughter, which would have prevented her execution and sentenced her to an average of 15 years in prison. I, when I think about this case, when I was researching it, it's so frustrating because when you think about what's happening in the 1940s and you think about all of the issues and adversity that we face, this, it's not surprising that they found her guilty of capital murder. But the idea that you wait 60 years to say, hey, okay, we did make a mistake. If we would have only sentenced her to 15 years for manslaughter, she would have had an opportunity to get out and live a regular life. But when I think about cases like this and I think about how African-Americans are still wrongfully convicted and then the justice system comes back and say, hey, um, we're sorry, we made this mistake. We are going to pardon you or we're going to exonerate you at this point. like You have just taken away so many years of my life. And I think I read somewhere where it's like you get 50, compensated like $50,000 per year and
1: sometimes even
0: less. No amount of money can make up for the fact that you literally could have looked deeper in my case back then, and this couldn't have been this didn't have to be a thing. It's it's frustrating.
1: It's frustrating because it's also when we look particularly at this case, um, this is sixty years of history of Georgia. Of Cuthbert. Mm-hmm. No. Cuthbert. Cuthbert, Georgia. And what has been happening? You, that also makes you have to think because when you come back and try to rectify and you say, okay, fine, this was a wrong on our part. Mm-hmm. That's going to then bring light to the jury selection. That brings light to the process of, of the defense Mm-hmm. That she really didn't have, it appears. It brings light to the jailing. She was housed with men. Yeah. And who knows what kind of rape
0: and Listen. abuse
1: she received at that point. It brings light to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And those things have not... During those 60 years, those things, nothing was brought light to that. So that probably was happening. We know this story.
0: Mm-hmm. But there are so ignoring many it for
1: this much time is more detrimental, not only to her and her family, but to
0: the society, the other African Americans. Yes. And you see the beginning statistics show that it's mostly African Americans who are wrongly convicted and they come back with a, oh, I'm sorry, we could have done better. Yes, you could have done better, but you haven't been doing better. Why is this something that keeps occurring? Why is it that we are constantly fighting for equality in the justice system? Why is it that we are constantly trying to make you guys see that our life matters just as much as white defendants, just as much as anybody else? It makes no sense to me and it's really frustrating, but I digress.
1: This case also reminds me, when I think of all the injustices, For this woman it reminds me of your focus for last month stalker awareness Mm -hmm. like she was being stalked and harassed Mm -hmm. and if there was any system in place socially or within the justice system for her to be able to like report him Mm -hmm. or have some type of protection then he would probably still have lived, and so would she. This yeah. prob- this murder would have never happened.
0: Right, but it's so unheard of during this time. And there were a few um, reports where it was like there was a white woman that her mom actually worked for that she wanted to go and testify. She wanted to be on Lena's side, but her husband was like, you, a white woman, gonna go yeah. and testify against this white man? Like, no, we're not having that. So yeah, I feel like she was definitely um, she was a victim in some cases. I She was definitely a victim. She was, de- the justice system definitely did not work in her favor, but during this time, like, you don't expect it to, so it's unfortunate, but that was the U.S. of A. in the 1940s. Her last words, along with her picture, are displayed near the death row, retired electric chair, so it's not there anymore, at a museum at Georgia State Prison in Reidsville. And that is the story of Lena Baker. Definitely devastating, definitely frustrating. But as I stated in the beginning, wrongful convictions are a thing that constantly occurs in America. This is not something that has gone away, though this happened in 1945, was that 70? Eight seventy-seven years ago, come on math, <laughs> that's a long time ago, and when we really think about it, it's not that, like, I have parent grandparents, and family members that are still living that are that age, that's the same age, so it's not like this happened a whole lifetime ago, like, this is something I feel like could be fresh for a lot of people, and it's still occurring in the justice system today, so it's just devastating, very well, thank you, Thank you for doing this. You are welcome. Thank you for joining me on this episode. You are so appreciated. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And that'll do it. So am I officially a couch detective? You are officially a couch detective. Thank you. Thank you. Oftentimes when we think about wrongful convictions, we think about the fact that someone is innocent. They didn't do it at all. And in most cases, that is accurate. However, with this case, she actually did it. But the charge did not match with the crime she committed, which happens far too often in the African-American community. Unfortunately for Lena Baker, it resulted in her death, as it has for many Black people in America. So today, let's not only remember Lena Baker, but all of those affected by the results of a wrongful conviction. Until next time, couch detectives, keep an eye out on your backyard.